A few quick remarks about the, about the program this week, and then again, Cantor Grant will actually introduce uh, Professor Sarusi. So um, it's a four-part summer scholar series. Tonight is the opening night here at Temple Bat Yam. Our topic is tradition, Eastern European Jewish music and its postmodern offspring. Uh, the three other programs come up uh, in succession. The first, the second program is a lunch program, a brown bag lunch tomorrow at the Jewish Community Center upstairs. Um, the topic is Judeo-Spanish mystique, ancient and modern and contemporary Sephardi music. The third program is on Tuesday night at Congregation B'nai Israel in Tustin. And the topic is singing, Israeliness, popular music and Israeli cultural, cultural identity. The final program will be a brown bag lunch back at the Federation campus on Wednesday, sound and music of the synagogue. You are invited to all of our programs. Thank you for coming tonight. And now, Professor, uh, Professor, um, Cantor, maybe Professor too, you're a teacher. Jonathan Grant from Temple Bat Yam. Thank you all. Thank you, Ari. Welcome everybody to Temple Bat Yam. You're in for a treat this evening. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say to check out our website as well, www.tby.org. You must be music lovers if you're here. We have a rich musical tradition here at Temple Bat Yam as well. So check out our website. Look for events that are coming up. You can email me directly right through the website. I'd be happy to answer any questions about what's happening here at TBY. So we are indeed in for a treat. Allow me to read a little bit. Uh, Professor Sarusi did not want me to do this. He's very modest, but I'm doing it anyway. He is the Emanuel Alexandra Professor of Musicology and Director of the Jewish Music Research Center at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Since 2008, he is head of the new School of the Arts at Hebrew University. Born in Montevideo, Uruguay. Did I do that okay? He immigrated to Israel in 1971 where he took undergraduate and graduate degrees in musicology at Hebrew University, receiving his PhD from UCLA, right here, in 1987. He has taught at Bar Ilan and Tel Aviv universities in Israel, was visiting professor at SUNY Binghamton, UCLA, Universidad de Buenos Aires, Wesleyan University, Dartmouth College, Institute for Music Wissenschaft in Zurich, Moscow University, University of California, Berkeley, Boston University, Harvard University, and tonight, Temple Bat Yum. <laughs> Professor Sarusi has published extensively on North African and Eastern Mediterranean Jewish musical traditions, on Judeo-Islamic relations in music, and on Israeli popular music. He founded Yuval Music Series, and is editor of the acclaimed CD series, Anthology of Music Traditions in Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Sarusi. Thank you so much for this <coughs> kind presentation. Uh, I am delighted and thrilled to be with you this evening. Uh, I want to start by thanking uh, in general, the wonderful Jewish community here in Orange County for having uh, me and my wife, who is here, Marlena, uh, for this week. Uh, to Ari Katz for his perseverance <laughs> and his magnificent work, uh, public work, of which I am very much aware that he's doing here in the field of particularly education in a period when that's not very easy to do. Uh, and uh, also Avi Margalit, who 
was extremely uh, uh, instrumental in um, making this uh, visit possible to the Wilner family who is hosting us uh, and to all of you for uh, coming uh, this evening. I want to tell you that one of my usual opening remarks, no matter about what I'm talking or where I'm talking or in which language I'm talking, is that uh, the, the most useless type of professor is a professor of music. <laughs> Nobody really needs any professor to explain music because all of you understand music, enjoy music, and usually whatever is added sometimes not only doesn't add to the experience of music, but sometimes it retracts from it. So uh, now I, I am not, as we say in Hebrew, I'm not shooting on my own feet, but I am uh, just saying this because I want to give you the credit that all of you are musicologists in a way, because you understand music. Perhaps you don't have the vocabulary to express with words what you are experiencing. So what I try in my teaching is to enhance that experience, to expand it, and, in, and to make it meaningful, and also to peel off, if I may say, some of the layers that music has as a human phenomenon that we are not always aware of. So uh, I will just uh, uh, start with why music, just I think that many of you will attend the fourth lecture, so I build this also as a series uh, of, uh, with certain continuity. Uh, and, uh, but this slide, I think I will repeat it in all the lectures just to make sure. First of all, music matters. Music is crucial, I can tell you, for the evolution and the future of the species known as Homo sapiens. Now, that's a very different and complex story that I won't get into that, why music is the same like food and like sex and like any other basic needs that we have. That applies to all the arts and to music even more. So music is not only about entertainment. One of the problems of music today is that it suffers uh, from a public uh, opinion or from a public view that music is about entertainment. And that music is, I may add, also a commodity, something that has a price, something that you can sell, something that you can make a lot of money with, sometimes not a big uh, artistic effort. And if you make a big artistic effort, you make no money. So uh, that, that's uh, um, uh, something that has affected music and the arts in general becoming a commodity. And I want to to take away from that perception of arts as a commodity and talk a little bit about uh, uh, values. And music is meaningful because it's one of our main emotional components of our identity, of our personality. In a way, we are the music that we remember. We are the music that we cherish. They are the music that we carry with us throughout all our lives. Uh, uh, at, at any given uh, age, and we keep adding to that repertoire more and more and more until our very last day. So, if you want, we are the way we sound, too. So, music also teaches a lot about history and society, 
And this is one of the main aspects, of course, where musicology can be extremely uh, illuminating. That is to say that we can learn about the evolution of communities, of um, social groups, uh, from music in ways that we cannot learn from text or from visual arts. It adds, it has something different, and I will make remarks in this coming week, in these four lectures, uh, additional remarks about how that uh, works. And then, uh, what is important in the, and here I'm getting a little bit into the subject of uh, Jewish music, music enlightened us about relations between social groups, such as shared sensibilities or divisive tensions. What do I mean? We can learn a lot about Jewish life in the past, Jewish memory, the Jewish experience of living in so many different diasporas and what the relations are by comparing between the music of the Jews and the music of the surrounding non-Jewish society, and as I will try to do today. And that teaches us a lot about shared values, but also about separation where we are separated and where we are integrated. I think these are, uh, you will be glad to hear all my theoretical uh, observations for tonight. I want you to hear, we will hear in my lectures what is good. Uh, I, I started saying what is uh, doubtful about musicology, but I will tell you what is good about lectures in music is that the speaker doesn't speak all the time. We will let the music and I will play for you plenty of music that works on your um, behalf. Now, I decided to focus on klezmer music. If I would try in an hour and 15 minutes to, to cover the entire of the Eastern European or Ashkenazi uh, culture in Europe, I will not achieve anything. So I choose something that I'm sure that you will enjoy. And I am sure that most of you have a certain idea, have heard klezmer music, whether live at weddings or through recordings, or you have seen programs, you mostly uh, today uh, the general public, Jewish, and I may add, non-Jewish throughout the world is exposed to klezmer music. But klezmer music is a problematic concept because it's so complex. People usually reduce the concept to very few sounds and live outside of the concept a tremendous amount of repertoires that are hardly known as klezmer. And you, we, we will play this uh, tonight a little bit. So it's a vast repertoire of instrumental music. So we are talking here about instrumental music, not about vocal music, covering different cultures, Jewish and non-Jewish, over a vast territory and from different periods. We will see very soon a map, a couple of maps. I usually give in every lecture on music a map so that we can situate ourselves and see the geography of klezmer music, how diverse it is. And this is why we cannot reduce klezmer music only to one specific sound. Uh, uh, what can we know about the music in the old Eastern European world? Well, uh, we uh, have uh, today uh, several sources that help us in, in our research and in our uh, understanding of klezmer music. 
but let me uh, point out a subject that will return in all my lectures. And this is, I'm sorry to go back just one uh, more second to theory. The history of music, of universal music, of the music of men and women, since we are uh, a civilized animal, is divided into two periods, before the invention of recordings and after the invention of <laughs> So crucial this is, and of course we take it for granted, that when I explain to my students how was the musical experience before recording? I mean, we cannot even conceptualize or imagine a world which is musicless unless you go to a place where someone is making the music or you do it yourself, for yourself. This poses a totally different ecology of music, a totally different system than the world in which we live today, which is saturated with sound. There is music absolutely everywhere, in public spaces, even if you're not listening to it, even if you're not aware. We constantly are being pondered by, 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 by sounds. This is a human experience that didn't exist in the past. The soundscape, at, at the most, the instrument that you, if you live in, in under uh, Christianity, so you heard the bells of the church every 15 or half an hour, an hour, depending on the church. That, that was about, you know, a sound that you could hear without uh, your initiative to go where the music is being made or to do it yourself. If you live in the world of Islam, you hear the muezzin calling from the minaret. But that's about it in terms of public uh, sound. So that's extremely important because klezmer music, I will show you how it changed dramatically after the invention of recordings. Not after 20 years, after the first recording, it was already a different uh, story. So to learn about the past, we have commercial recordings and this is an historical uh, uh, point that I want to make, that we have klezmer recordings starting in the first decade of the 20th century. So by now, we have 110 years of klezmer music, which give us the opportunity to see also certain uh, historical developments because the earliest recordings were done in Europe or even in the United States, in America, by the immigrants who just arrived from Europe and therefore allow us to have a glimpse into how this music sounded before its commercialization. Now, uh, we also have photographs. Uh, I will show you a few photographs so that we, can, we have at least some visual images of the music situation without the sound. We just have the visual. And we have literary descriptions of the music. But that doesn't help us in terms of the sound of the music. And uh, of course, uh, we are talking about immigrants' music that it's if, if I may quote uh, uh, the name of a book of a very distinguished colleague of mine who is one of the world experts in Plesmer, he wrote a book called Fiddler on the Move. 
This is a music on the move. This is a music that moves all the time from place to place. The musicians, the klezmorians, since the medieval period, they never stood in one place. They were moving all the time. So even before there was uh, uh, iPads and iPods and whatever movable devices that move the music, people move and with them the music moves. This is why this music is so rich and so hybrid, so, so uh, complex because the people were moving. And of course, the big immigration from Europe to America marks, it's a landmark in the history of klezmer music, but the music moved in Europe even uh, before. And then we are going to uh, speak, this is the postmodern, if you want, aspect of my lecture, a little bit of what happened to klezmer music after it died and it resurrected in the 1960s and 1970s. Klezmer music, as it was in Europe, more or less disappeared, not only in America, certainly in Europe with the Holocaust. And uh, in Israel, it's a different story. I don't know if I will have the time to, to touch on that, but the, the music, as it was in, uh, for hundreds of years in Europe, sort of disappeared. And it suddenly reappeared in the late 1960s, early 1970s in the United States as a result of specific uh, uh, social and cultural developments within American Judaism. And I will say a few words towards the end regarding that, if we have time. A little bit about maps. Ashkenazi Jews, they, uh, you know, nobody really knows when it starts, but uh, around the year 500, uh, we are still in the uh, Roman Empire, in the Western Roman Empire. You see, most Ashkenazi Jews were once Italians. They, the Jews moved from Italy north into the Rhine Valley and into, into France. And that's how most historians believe that the Ashkenazi Jewry uh, de developed. Uh, here you have a second stage in Ashkenazi Jewry. I'm sorry, I'm running by a thousand years in every slide because we don't have the time. But this is the big immigration from west to east, to Eastern Europe. Uh, in the, in the, starting with the expulsion of Jews from Germany in the 11th century, 12th century, with the massacres uh, following the Crusaders, and then uh, we have expulsions from Austria, from Hungary. The Jews are being all the time pushed from the west into the east, and this is how we have the big uh, uh, um, Eastern European Jewry coming uh, into, into being. And the last, uh, we, we are now in the 18th, 19th century, the Pale of Settlement, uh, that is to say the major areas where the Jews are uh, uh, limited to live uh, within the big, huge Russian Empire, um, areas that are uh, uh, today, of course, Western Russia, uh, uh, Belorussia, uh, um, uh, Eastern Poland, and uh, parts of, uh, of um, uh, Northern Austria, uh, what it used to be Galicia. So uh, I hope there are Galicianers here. Okay. Uh, so uh, this is the, the area where the, the, the uh, Jews live, uh, uh, more or less, for two, three hundred years uh, from the, the 1600s into the 1900s, into the 1800s, when the big immigrations outside from this area start. I'm saying this because this is the period where most klezmer music, as we know it today, takes its shape and takes its shape in relationship 
with the music of this huge area. I just want to, to tell you that here is Turkey. So there are substantial parts of Ashkenazi Jewry which for all practical purposes are under the Turkish Empire. And we are talking about Turkish music, Middle Eastern music. And then at the very west, uh, northwest, we are in totally Western European musical cultures. Different scales, different rhythms, different instruments, and there are chrismorium all around. So therefore, when we study music, we have to be aware of this geographical and historical complexity. Something about the klezmer bands before we move into the music itself. The Jewish instrument, I'm not saying anything new for you, is the violin. Okay? Today, when you say klezmer, what comes to your mind immediately? Clarinet. Okay? Like you say jazz, it comes to saxophone, you say klezmer, it comes to clarinet. Clarinet is a newcomer to klezmer. It's one, actually, of the major shifts in the movement from Europe to America. The, the decline of the violin in favor of the uh, clarinet. The classic uh, uh, klezmer ensemble included two violins, a, an instrument called cymbal, which is this instrument, it's a dulcimer, okay? The cymbal is actually a, probably a Jewish development from a medieval German instrument, that small dulcimer that became uh, bigger. And uh, here you have another picture which is uh, a little bit uh, more clearer. And as you can see, it is played, the picture is not very clear, with two uh, hammers, two little hammers. And this instrument uh, has all these bridges and the bridges are adjusted for the sake of tuning the strings. This is the Jewish instrument of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, which is totally going to disappear. Those of you who know Hungarian music know a much expanded version, okay, the cymbalon, the, the Hungarian instrument which looks almost like a piano, is very, very big, and it, it sounds much more aggressive than the cymbalon. We're going to hear very soon uh, uh, an example of the cymbalon. Uh, a klezmer orchestra was called a capellia in Yiddish, okay? A chapel, okay? Uh, and it was a stable, itinerant orchestra Sometimes it was a family business. It was the whole family, okay? And it, go, and it went from generation to generation. This is why I don't know if among the donors of this synagogue is the symbolista family. But the symbolists are, the symbolist family are the uh, inheritors of families of symbol players, okay? So, uh, and of course, uh, there are other Jewish names which are related to, to musical instruments. So, but Simbalista is one of the most important ones. The, the orchestras used to move from one place to the other and perform for Jews and non-Jews. This is very important. Many Klesmorian perform in non-Jewish weddings too. A musician has to make a living. Whoever is paying is good. For this reason, for this heavy interaction with the non-Jewish society, Klesmorin didn't have a good name in the Jewish community. Let alone other, how do you say, weaknesses that musicians have, like they usually like a little bit more of alcohol than what usually you are allowed to, and other um, um, 
types of behaviors that usually put the klezmorim in the margins of the Jewish community. These were people who were suspected uh, in their behavior and in their ties with non-Jews. By the way, we know that there were uh, ensembles that included gypsies and Jews. So the gypsies, another marginal people, and the klezmorim met in the field of music because of the marginality of both uh, groups. Uh, only in the mid-19th century, we have the clarinet starting to uh, become a, an, an instrument. The violins, they usually were two violins. The second violin is called in Yiddish second. And the second is like filling up the, the main sound of the first violin. So the clarinet starts to uh, become like a second. Uh, we have for the first time some uh, percussion instrument into klezmer music. Uh, this Moldavian uh, frame drum, we're going to see the picture. Then the Jews are recruited by the, by the Tsar to the Russian army. And many Jews, in order to avoid going to areas which are not particularly hospitable, they say, I am a musician. And many of them go to orchestras. And in orchestras, in the military orchestras, they start to play all the instruments of the military orchestra, particularly the brass instrument. This is how uh, we have into klezmer music trombones and trumpets and even tubas coming into klezmer music. And finally, in the early 20th century, the music moves from the movable orchestra that accompanies the wedding procession or the celebrations of the community. In America, klezmer music, for all practical purposes, becomes stage music whether it's performed in a hotel um, uh, in the Catskills or whether it's performed on a, on a theater in Second uh, Avenue in New York City. And therefore, you can have a piano. You couldn't have a piano when the orchestra was moving in the wedding procession. But now you have a piano. And the piano, in a way, is the cousin of the symbol. The symbol of the piano are genetically related. So um, that's, uh, the accordion also became a very important uh, klezmer uh, instrument. A little bit uh, of pictures. Here you have a, a, a nice picture. I don't have a, a better one, but from a CD of uh, Petruchevsky, a very, very active uh, young uh, uh, klezmer uh, in New York City. He teaches a lot, gives a lot of uh, worship. So you see the, how the, uh, the uh, symbol was played. It was hung on, on, on the neck of the musician, that the musician could walk with the symbol by, um, by, um, by hanging it on the neck. And here you see also uh, the way the violin was played by the klezmorim. Not like the, I am a violinist, so, you know, not like this, but uh, like the Baroque violin was played. So we see here, uh, in these uh, pictures, remnants of how the music was played. And I, um, I wanted to bring something from art, so uh, I couldn't find the picture I wanted, but I found this one by Chagall. Chagall made this p uh, painting in 1909. Chagall pa painted many klezmorim. He liked klezmer music, he experienced klezmer music in his life, and he had many musicians. Of course, the fiddler is the one that everybody knows. But here, this is interesting. This is a Russian wedding. It's not that he doesn't define this as a Jewish wedding, even though a couple of people look like Jews. But the one who really looked like a Jew is the cymbal player, which 
You can see here the instrument. The fiddler is uh, dressed like a soldier of the Tsar army, but the, but the symbol player is obviously a Jew. So if this is a Russian uh, uh, Christian wedding procession, you can see here a Jew, even a from Jew, playing in a Russian uh, 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 wedding. It may be that this uh, is indeed a Jewish wedding and he just called the painting Russian wedding. I was trying to find out with uh, the, uh, my art connections and still nobody could answer me that question. Here you have uh, an ensemble of, uh, of Klesmorin, you have the two, uh, uh, three violins, you have the, uh, the uh, cello, by the way, the cello uh, and the bass was also used in processions. It was also hung on, on the, on, uh, with a belt and you could move. It's a little bit awkward, but you can do that. And you see the, uh, the Moldavian frame drum, which was a relatively new instrument. And you see these Jews, they look a little bit like gypsies. Okay, you, you are not sure, uh, you know. And here you have, uh, a band of Galizianers, these are, this is from Galicia, from before the Holocaust, uh, 1930s, uh, street musicians. Now, one important aspect uh, to pay attention is how these people look, okay? Here you have everybody has a beard and everybody has a hat, and here everybody is beardless and without hats. And uh, this is, there is 30 years difference between these two pictures, okay? Here we have another uh, ensemble. Here you can already see the trombone, okay? The introduction of uh, brass. Uh, of course, the, the, the brass instruments, and particularly the clarinet, they have much more power. So when you're playing in the outside, in the open, in the weddings, you have much more uh, power. Here you have a postcard of, uh, of a Jewish wedding. Uh, uh, it's uh, actually a Hasidic, uh, uh, dance and uh, you see the clarinet again and the, and the violin and you can see the different types of dress and uh, one has a beard and the other one doesn't have has a beard. Uh, I think you know, you've seen this uh, movie, I hope, uh, Molly Picon, Idle Mid and Fiddle, which in a way recalls a lot of the life of the Eccles Morning. I mean, it's a really, it's not only for me a film uh, for entertainment, but it's a sort of ethnography of how plasma music was. And you see the two violins, the bass, and the uh, clarinet, the classic uh, ensemble uh, of uh, late 19th century. Here you already see a much more uh, uh, developed uh, ensemble, so the ensembles also grow in numbers. From three or four, we have eight, and then we will have 12 and 15 musicians, and you see, you have here all the different types of beers that you can imagine. Long beer, short beer, you know, French beer, and uh, moustache, um, you know, uh, Ottoman moustache, and you have people with big hats, with small hats, and without any hats. So you see here, through these visuals, the Jewish culture in flux. Every Jew starts to look a little bit different, vis-a-vis uh, -vis modern culture, and, and uh, uh, this is uh, very instructive. Here, another orchestra, almost like a big band now, okay? You see you have like uh, two cornets and, and trombones. America. All of the sudden, of course, no beards, no hats, but now we have a uniform. Now the 
Capellia, the orchestra, starts to look like an American ensemble, uh, usually imitating jazz ensembles. So the, all the musicians dress the same. In Europe, we didn't have that. Okay, so now you have much more of a stage uh, 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 scenography. You know, you, you're staging the music. Here, the great Dave Taras in the middle, the clarinetist. Actually, I would say he is the link, the sacred link between klezmer music in Europe and klezmer music in America. This man who was one of the greatest artists that reached this country, Jewish artist, was very active and recorded a lot in the 20s and 30s, and then disappeared. And he retired like all Jews to, to Florida, and only in the 60s, uh, some kids, American Jewish kids from New York, which were 16, 17 years old and wanted to return to the, to the uh, um, culture of their grandparents, not of their parents. They went back two generations, they found Taras, and he became like the guru in the very last years of his life. He taught very young Americans, so you see how the tradition was. Uh, but here you see him uh, not only without the beard and without the hat, but also with the sleeves up, so that's almost... In Europe, well, that would be like being naked, okay? <laughs> and here you see one of... Uh, Klezmer music in, the, in the, one of the big hotels in the Catskills, and here you see Taras uh, dressed like a, you know, like a classic musician, okay, uh, performing in the hotel. And uh, final picture is one of the most famous examples of today. Here you have the, the Klezmatics, which not only they are dressed like Caribbean musicians, but uh, um, uh, at least uh, one-third of them are not Jews, which is fine, perfect. So, so now klezmer music is the music of musicians, not only the music of the Jews. Klezmer music is the music of the musicians who love this art, regardless of, the, of their ethnic or racial uh, background. So far, so good. Let's listen. From now on, we are only going to listen to music until the end. The klezmer repertoire consists, it's like a cake, you know, you have layers, okay? You have layers. So you have a core repertoire, which is what we assume is the older parts of the repertoire. We have transitional repertoire, which means the transition between the very old world, even the late medieval world, into modernity, 18th century. Co-territorial means music shared by klezmorim and, and, and non-Jewish uh, 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 groups, particularly uh, uh, gypsies, but not only gypsies. And then you have cosmopolitan. Then Klezmer in the 19th century becomes cosmopolitan. We are going to give examples of all of this. So, let's go to the music itself. I will just make some uh, observations regarding the music uh, as far as uh, the time allows me. First of all, the main core of Klezmer music is uh, dance music. It's music to accompany dance and specific dances and specifically the Freilachs and the Sher. These are the two well-established old Jewish dances, going perhaps at least as far as we know from the, uh, from the um, uh, steps and the way of the dance, that they go back to at least 17th century uh, dances. So the Jews adopted dances that were fashionable at the time in, uh, let's say, a big uh, uh, Polish cities, so even in Germany, that they uh, just 
pick up on these movements and they develop their own language. So Freilax and Cher are uh, these uh, two basic uh, dances. So we hear one of each, just I apologize that I won't be able to play the entire pieces, otherwise we'll be here until midnight. So I will play just an excerpt, but if you want in the future, I can suggest to you a certain discography and you can send to everybody, whoever wants to have uh, for their own collection uh, all this uh, music and let's hope that everything works technologically. Simple. The sound is a little bit different from what you associate with classical music, isn't it? Tell me the truth. Yeah? Yes. It's, first of all, much more meditative, much more... Uh, uh, also, it doesn't have that, that uh, how can I say, exciting rhythm that most classical music commercial today has. It's relatively slow, and the dances for the Freilags in many cases were solo dancing. It was an artist dancing on behalf of the entire community. The share is more of a, of a group dancing, okay? So here you have uh, also, I, I don't want to get into too much musicology, but you heard that some parts had a beat and then all of a sudden it becomes more like a cantor's recitative, a little bit the violin part. And there is a lot of improvisation. So there are many repetitions here of the same melody, if you want the same idea, but every time is performed a little bit uh, different. Improvisation is extremely important. Let's hear now the share, which is a little bit uh, different.
most of the Jewish tunes have three parts, three melodies, and each part is repeated twice. That's a pattern. That's what you just heard, the cycle of three. I stop it here because now it will go back to the beginning and repeat as much as the dancers are dancing, and as much as it is needed. So it's an open work. When classical music starts to be recorded by the music industry here in America, you need to have a cut of three minutes. So pieces that used to be very long become extremely uh, shorter than in comparison with was, uh, what it was. Now, many people confuse classical music with Hasidic music. And I beg you now, you are my students, okay? Now you know that classical music existed well before the Hasidic movement came into being, depending on how you count, somewhere in the mid-18th century. And the issue is that the Klezmorin served the entire Ashkenazi community, both the Hasidim and the non-Hasidim. And when they play for the Hasidim, because the musicians usually try to please their audiences, they play Hasidic vocal tunes. So parts of the Klezmer repertoire coincides with Hasidic music, but then there are Hasidic tunes that have nothing to do with Klezmer, and Klezmer music that has nothing to do with Hasidic music. I hope that this point is good. If this is the only thing you will remember from my lecture, <laughs> so, I, I'm going to play one recording. This is a recording of us of the Hebrew University of the Jewish Music Research Center, a real Hasidic wedding. We record uh, in it, we have recorded in Israel for the past 50 years about 2,000 hours of real Hasidic events. And we have published some of this uh, music, which is totally unheard, because whatever you go to the store and you buy as Hasidic music is makeup, Hasidic music. Usually not performed by Hasidic and elaborated. So this is the real stuff. So this is a real wedding. I would just play part of an igun. And what's happening here is that the Hasidic are singing their vocal tune and the Klezmoric join them. So you hear both the instruments and the, uh, the people. It's a little messy because it's a real event. In other parts of the recordings, you can hear the glasses, the, the dishes, you know, all the geschäft of the, of the wedding.
This uh, can go for these two, these three sections for 45 minutes. <laughs> until, until everybody is, uh, you know, almost exhausted. And it, it, people get into uh, an emotional, uh, you know, uh, uh, how can I say? Um, state, yeah, uh, of, uh, of uh, enhanced experience, okay, uh, by the music. And uh, by the way, uh, we, we turned down the volume. This music now is played with an incredible volume, like any secular uh, uh, wedding or rock concert. And you have now, of course, the drum set of rock and roll. Okay, pounding, certainly that has no precedent in classical music. So you see here also, I'm bringing now uh, towards the end uh, a little bit of the processes where you have a big, uh, big band, big brass, big sound, rock drums uh, into, into the scene. And you heard where we started with this little violin and the cymbal, and now we go into this uh, power. Another important issue with klezmer music is that the klezmorim also share parts of their repertoires with Yiddish folk songs. Once again, the Yiddish folk song is one thing, the Hasidic Nigun is one thing, the klezmer music is another thing. But they all live in the same Jewish society. And therefore, there are overlappings in the repertoire. So Klesmorin played Yiddish songs, songs that were only vocal. And then there are Yiddish songs that pick up on Klesmer tunes and they put words, and then you have a new song. So we have this interlocking. And let me play a very interesting recording. Here you have cymbal and accordion recorded in New York, 1913. It's a beautiful performance. Uh, it's two Yiddish songs back to back. Uh, the one we hear is called Joschke Furtavek. This is a vocal piece because it's very simple, and the range is really the range of, uh, of uh, vocal music. The music doesn't jump up and down like you can play in the clarinet. Okay, so uh, it's a very, uh, very beautiful, very meditative. Here you have accordion as the new instrument in classical music here uh, in in America, and then uh, uh, the final example of the core repertoire. It's a song called, uh, a, a, it's not a song, it's a genre called Dobriden, which means good evening in, in uh, uh, Russian, I think in Polish too, some Polish speakers here think Dobriden is in Polish too. Now, where the, the, the repertoire, as I said, is mostly for dancing, the core repertoire for dancing, but there are also uh, tunes for listening. And where do you listen to tunes? Mostly in three different events. One, in the wedding. The Jewish wedding, which is the topic of another series of lectures, not just one, it's a very big 
fair, it includes many uh, events within itself. And sometimes the klezmorin play where the public is just sitting down or attending something. So Kalebizetsen, for example, when the veil of the the veil you call it? yeah of the of the kala of the of the bride is is being put into her and dobriden uh, which means uh, good evening is the uh, when the uh, uh, bride and the groom are 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 um, brought into the wedding so good evening okay uh, uh, and then in purim in purim parties the klezmorim used to perform for the public sometimes as part of the purim spiel Okay, of the of the story of Purim, and also there are Hanukkah tunes. Uh, the Krismorin used to play in Hanukkah parties, and the lighting of the altar, lighting of the candles, they used to play, and the public just used to listen to the music. No dance uh, over there. Dobri then. It's a little bit sad. Did I hear a ballon like that? What? Did I hear a ballon like that? A ballon like that? No, no, that's a symbol. Oh. That's a symbol, the lower part of the symbol, yeah. Oh, interesting. No balalaika, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that. Uh, but let me uh, tell you that the wedding, you may think it's uh, the most joyous occasion. The Jewish tradition of Jewish wedding shares parts of the repertoire with funerals. Now, don't ask me now why. <laughs> But uh, it's because it's very complex. But there is a lot of sadness in the in the in the in the wedding. The sadness of separation, separation from the family, particularly from of the bride. So the music actually expresses uh, a little bit of that sadness too. Let's move a little bit into something more uh, up, um, lifting uh, towards the end. Uh, so the transitional repertoires here. You have the klezmorim as results of contact both with gypsies and also with the Lautari. One of the most important sources for klezmer music is Moldavian music. The klezmorim and the Moldavians share a lot. Moldavia, or Bessarabia as it was called, is the Eastern Romania, if you want. Or the, 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 it's shared between Eastern Romania and Western Ukraine. And that's where a lot of the exciting, more exciting uh, klezmer music comes from. So we're going to hear a Bulgar. A Bulgar is a genre, people think it's music from Bulgaria, and it's not. A Bulgar is the name of a very traditional Moldavian dance shared by Jews and non-Jews. You can hear this tune both in a Moldavian Christian wedding and in a Jewish wedding. Okay. 
know you like this, but uh, I have to stop uh, out of time. But this is the great, the great Naftule Vranban. There were two great Jewish musicians who came to this country, Dave Taras and Naftule Vranban, and they compete with each, with each other, two great clarinetists. So here you have clarinet and piano, more or less, that's what you hear. Uh, much more of a virtuoso style, much more uh, clean type of performance. This is already a commercial recording from the 1920s, still in the very old Bulgar uh, uh, style. And the piano, you can feel, comes instead of the cymbal. It has more or less the same effect of just a company making chords and not uh, uh, doubling the... Would you repeat those two names, please? Yes. Naftule Brandwein, Brandwein, Dave Tarras. Now, let me play you another example because there are a few cantors here in the, in the congregation, in the, in the public. Uh, of course, we said Yiddish song, okay? We said Hasidic Nigun, Klezmer, and there is the cantorial art of the synagogue, which also shares with all of these different aspects of Ashkenazi Eastern European culture, melodies. So, melodies of the synagogue are played by Klezmerin without the words including Kol Nidre, okay, as an instrumental piece, and vice versa. Many cantors, influenced from what they heard last night at the wedding, they may incorporate a new nigun into uh, some of their prayers. So here you have a doina. A doina is one of the most traditional genres of Romanian folk music. It's a very meditative, improvisational type of piece, which if you hear, you can see how cantors pick up some of their ideas in their improvisations from, from this genre. Sorry that yes. That's um, the Jewish music that I've experienced. That what? That's the Jewish music that I've experienced. Is that Romanian or Jewish? Romanian. I'm sorry, but <laughs> but let me let me let me give you this. It's it's as much as it is Romanian, it is Jewish. So my message here, what I'm trying to teach you is, we have to get rid of those categories. We have an aesthetic sensibility, musical sensibility, shared by people of different religious and ethnic groups, etc. That's what we have here. So I won't tell you that this is not Jewish music because it's also quintessential Jewish music. And you see how the cantors, cantor, tell me the truth. This is, you know? Okay. Now, uh, I just mentioned that on uh, passant that uh, I am able to give you this lecture today through the efforts of many scholars who in the past 25, 30 years are putting these commercial recordings from the beginning of the century back into circulation. And you won't believe that most of the work is done in Germany. 
That's where most of the work comes. So this is the Virgo company, one of the CDs from which I played uh, uh, tonight. And uh, we spoke about 19th century accretions, okay? 19th century uh, expanded, particularly because of the life in the Pale of Settlement, the amount of music that the Chris Morning used to play. And they learned how to play particularly Ukrainian and Russian dances. So here you have the Kolomea, Kolomeika, and the Kozachok. I will only play one of them because we don't, uh, how are we doing with the time? I just want to, I have to finish? 10 minutes is good. So I only play one, but these are dances that you will recognize a little bit more because also some of these dances are today dance in, in the world dance or folk dance uh, 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 gatherings uh, in, in social clubs all around the world. So some of them are very well known. And some people say, well, this is a Jewish tune. Okay, because some of these dances are very well known from the Klesmorin, but they are in fact dances shared once again, mostly with Ukrainian, um, okay, I don't know, they're both beautiful. Let's play the Kozachok because it's... move towards our days, our less than minutes, let's listen to just music which is closer to us. Uh, the Crismorim, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, we're speaking also Galicia is part of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, so therefore people, the Crismorim, they hear uh, fashionable dances of the time, polka, vals, quadrille, they play anything. Just pay me, I will play for you any music you want. That's what a good musician is supposed to do. Therefore, all this enters the Klezmer repertoire. Also in the Middle East, I mentioned Israel, I will play you just a few sounds of Klezmer music from Israel. A special style that developed within the, uh, 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 the life of the Jews in what was then Eretz Israel, Palestine of the period. Uh, uh, most of the autochthonous Klezmer music from Israel is Turkish music because we are talking about Israel under the Ottoman Empire. And the Klesmorim learned to play the music that the Turkish orchestra used to play in Jerusalem and in Jaffa, and that's where many of the traditional tunes came. The most important Klezmer event in Israel to this very day is, uh, uh, it takes place in the holiday of Lagba Omer, the 33rd day after Passover, thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews Mostly Hasidic and North African Jews meet in Mont Meron, in the Upper Galilee, in the tomb of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the, the man to whom usually the Zohar is ascribed to. And the, the Lagba Omer, the 33rd day uh, of the Omer, is supposedly his Yorzai. 
And the Jews come to rejoice in the outside of this saint. And they live for a week around the tomb. They just spend an entire week there. You have the bonfires and klezmer music there is prominent. And there is a repertoire of Nigunei Meron. And here you're going to hear the greatest uh, uh, Israeli klezmer from Meron, uh, uh, Musa Berlin. So his name is Musa, which is Moshe, okay, but Musa in Arabic. And uh, this, uh, the sound of Meron is unique because it includes only military drums and, and clarinets. That's all what they had in Meron. No violins, no cymbal, no piano, no nothing. Just military drums and, and uh, clarinets. By the way, this, the music is played also, uh, the reason that there are no, no big instruments is because a lot is taken in a procession. So there is a big procession in with a Torah scroll is taken from the city of Safed, which is about seven miles from Meron, on the day of Lagba Omer and the Klesmorin go in front of the Torahs and they play this music with the drums and the clarinet. So it's very beautiful, it still happens uh, until today, but in Israel, nothing is the same like it used to be. So it's a little bit different, but I won't go into details. Uh, it used to be better. Uh, <laughs> let me end with uh, a couple of pieces of uh, contemporary klezmer music in America. So as I said, the 60s and the 70s saw what is usually today known in the, in the literature as the klezmer revival. And I already hinted what was the social process that created this revival. And what is interesting is, and here I go back to Germany, that many of these musicians moved to Europe. And in Europe, particularly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, a thirst for Jewish culture developed. Whereas klezmer music filled up a tremendous gap in the interest of non-Jewish young Germans and Poles and Czechs, etc., to have Judaism back in Europe, where there are no more Jews, only Jewish graves. So today, klezmer festivals in every single city you can imagine in Europe, big money being put into klezmer. And there are klezmer schools, and many musicians play this music on the streets in the summer, usually in Krakow, in Mainz, you name it. It's an incredible development. And here you see the power of music to represent a culture that is dead. The culture is dead, so all what you have is the sounds of what it was. In America, of course, it's a different story. I'm going to play only two pieces. I thought three, but we don't have time. 
the first one, just one of the most important ensembles of, um, of that America saw of klezmer music, the uh, Klezmer Conservatory Band. This is a band that was created at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston, uh, started uh, already 30 years ago. And uh, you can see here that most of these music majors from the conservatory, before they even dream about klezmer music, they were jazz musicians. So jazz and klezmer are two partners. It goes back to the beginning of the century. Many klezmerians came from Europe. They make incredible careers as jazz musicians. They knew they had all the tools, professional tools, to make the switch. They just had to get a little bit into the groove of the blues, and that was it. So uh, I don't want to remind you, Benny Goodman and other names, people who really their background was uh, on uh, Ziggy Elman and, and you name it. So uh, 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 this uh, partnership between jazz and klezmer continues also in the new, in the young generation. So this is a piece called Foolish Freilichs. So now you know what Freilichs is, the old dance, but now sort of Ameri Americanized and, and making a little bit fun of it, okay? So the approach is really a big band approach, okay? A jazz big band. My last example, just to show you once again the move of klezmer music into world music, into music that crosses all the barriers, a beautiful tune by an American musician called Branford Marcellus. I hope that you know who Branford Marcellus is. Branford Marcellus wrote a klezmer piece for a TV program. Uh, I have to read this because I don't remember my memory. There is a series for children of cartoons called Rabbit Ears. And there is one cartoon of Rabbit Ears about David and Goliath, narrated by Mel Gibson. <laughs> From all. And Branford Marcellus wrote a klezmer piece for the credits. After the program for the rolling credits, we have a piece called Lechaim. And with this, we will end. And you will see that Bramford got it right.
Do we have a minute for a question? Or sure, are yes. Yeah, please. Yes. Uh, I think UNESCO has had several Hungarian or Romanian dances, and that music sounds very much like Klezmer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. I have no answer to that except tell you that you're right. There was an ancient um, instrument called the Santur, dates back to the 12th century or earlier, as you probably know it. But is that the next step for the symbol? Yeah. Thank you for your question. I didn't want to go into that. That's called organology. Yeah. Organology is the study of musical instruments. Certainly, the, the principle of the instrument that we know as zither in, in musicology. That is to say, strings that are um, lay on a, 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 a case goes back to the 12th, 12th century. 12th century earlier, perhaps. I was much younger in those days. Well, I have news for you. I have news for you. It goes back to the 12th century BC. Right, BC. We have we have that in in the Basque beats from Persia. This instrument, which more probably started there. Okay, this principle of putting the strings, instead of putting them in an ark, like the instruments in Egypt and Mesopotamia, they put it on a, on a box of resonance. So that principle is the principle of all instruments called zither. No, no, the zithers. Okay, this is different from the dudes. Okay, I don't want to start giving a lecture. <laughs> Believe me, it's a zither. The dulcimer, all the dulcimers, uh, all the symbolons uh, on the santur and the kanun, the Arabic kanun, they all belong to that same family. And for all practical purposes, the piano is just a big extension. The only difference of the piano is you have the keyboard. Instead of pounding on the strings with your own hands, you have a mechanism that does that. So, but that's the same instrument. Yes? Are there a fixed number of strings for that instrument? I'm sorry? A fixed number of strings? Oh, yeah. Well, no. Uh, yeah, of course. Every, every tradition has a different number of strings, but then every instrument, uh, I mean, the, the, the cymbal and the santur and the, and the kanun, they have different uh, instruments. Sometimes even the very same instrument in the Arab countries and in Turkey, it has different instruments, uh, different uh, number of, of strings. Uh, but usually, uh, most of, in most of the instruments, the strings are double or triple. So for every every pitch, you have three strings or two strings. That's what creates this sound, this vibration. And believe me, the most uh, the most characteristic of all these instruments, when you go to a concert, the musician has to have three hours before to tune it. It takes forever to tune. Imagine the, the Arabic kanun has 72 strings uh, multiplied by three. So he has to do 210 strings to make the instrument. Uh, and of course, every, every change in humidity in, you know, uh, changes the So it's an ordeal. Uh, it's the, the instruments that are difficult to domesticate. Yeah, Ari. Which came first, the cantorial chazanut uh, or the klezmers? Because you played the klezmers, it sounded like cantorial music. No, okay, okay. Listen, the human voice came before anything. Okay, human voice is the first instrument that we know. The issue that human beings start to use nature, the products of nature, to make sound. It's a much uh, relatively later development, uh, but not so late because 
we now have a flute discovered three years ago only in archaeological excavations and is 30,000 years old. A little flute in Europe. So, so uh, the issue of making musical instruments is relatively new because people were making sounds before 30,000 years ago. Now, the, the, uh, we, as, we assume that cantorial art developed within uh, an environment which had no instruments. So it was only vocal music and uh, uh, certain patterns, I think they are quintessential to the performance of the tefillah, of the, of the vocal prayer, and they were picked up from, from, from there. But certainly the way back from instrumental music into the cantorial <coughs> music uh, goes back uh, at least, in my opinion, two, three hundred years, if not more. Okay, so this interaction is, is mostly from the vocal to the instrumental and not vice versa. Also, for a simple reason, it's much easier to play a vocal tune with an instrument than to sing an instrumental music. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say that the Klezmer music previous to, let's say, North America here in the yeah. 20s uh, was not written down? Was passed down orally from person yeah. to person? Yes, uh, basically everything was transmitted orally, people knew by heart. However, uh, Jews start to uh, write down music, uh, uh, both uh, synagogue music, cantorial music, uh, in, in, in relative um, big uh, numbers, only in the mid-19th century. Okay. We hardly have any music notation of Jewish music uh, before 1800s. Okay. Very few examples and very rare. Everything was in the head of the musician. By the way, another important issue for you to remember as my students for all this week and forever. Music is orally transmitted. That's the natural way of transmitting music. Musical notation is an accident of history that has mostly to do with the church trying to impose a systematic liturgy in all the Roman Empire. And that's how they started with this crazy idea of writing down the music. So most of the music written down is not composed. It's music that already existed and they try to write it down so that they can unify what is being sung in all the churches at the same time. So, Musical notation for Jews was out of the question until the 19th century, when, through the process of opening to the general society, to general education, Jews start to attend conservatories, school music, and they start to write down also their own musical repertoires. So we do have, uh, particularly Yiddish songs and uh, a few classmates tunes from the 1880s, 1890s, and nothing even before. Cantorial music we have from a little bit earlier, but not much. So uh, remember that music is about memory. Music is the strongest element of human memory. And I can tell you, musicians, good musicians, remember hundreds and thousands of tunes they have deposited. Music notation, an accident of history. Wouldn't you say that the writing uh, down of music has to do with ownership as well, and it has, it's a capital 
idea? People have their intellectual property and... No, of course. Yeah. Certainly, the, the, not only the... By the way, the use of notation and the recording for all practical purposes are the same. Because that catches the piece and it frozes it into one product that then can say this is the piece of such an author. And indeed, many of the Klesmore who came to America wrote copyrights on pieces that they learned in Europe by oral tradition, that nobody knows who the composer was. And they collected royalties, which is not nice. I think, no, please. One last question. One last question. Well, you're so you tell me. Because How many do we have to two? Okay. Yeah. Can you compare what you were just saying a few minutes ago about a hundred years or so of written yeah. invitation? Recorded. Recorded. With, with Torah Shro? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, listen, Torah Troll, we have musical notation from the 16th century, uh, the Ashkenazi Troll. And the reason is that in the 16th century, this is another lecture. You want to answer? Well, I will. It's four more sessions. And Torah cantillation is a big session. But uh, the, in the 16th century, with the rise of humanism, uh, Christian scholars start to be interested on the Hebrew Bible in its original version, the Hebrew version. So that's how the Hebraists, uh, of, uh, particularly the Dutch and German Hebraists, start to be interested in Jewish stuff, and they go to the rabbis to learn. Okay, really, that's again something that today we cannot imagine that these Christian theologians go to rabbis just to learn. How, and among other things, one of them said, oh, this compilation, I want to write it down. And he wrote it down with music notation, uh, and it was published. It was printed in a book about the Torah uh, in 1515, in Germany, with the music notation. Okay? But that's very rare, and also that music notation only gives us a glimpse when you hear how the Torah is chanted in the 20th century and what he wrote down, you can hardly connect between them. Now, I have a student who wrote an entire dissertation about that, and he has a theory, but that's really for another lecture. <laughs>